1: You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Ann McElvoy, and this week we're asking, do the Republicans need Donald Trump to win? The grand old party is in a bind. Although he lost the White House last year, the former president still looms large. He's far from gone nor forgotten. And with next year's midterm elections on the horizon, Republicans need to decide whether to re-embrace their old leader clue might lie in Virginia where last month Glenn Youngkin, a political novice, captured the governor's mansion from the Democrats and he did so in part by leaning on the Trump agenda of culture wars. Also from the state is my guest this week, the former Virginia congressman Eric Cantor. He was an ascending star in the GOP, a flag bearer for moderate conservatism, and he rose to be the House majority leader from 2011 to 2014. Then, in a spectacular defeat, he lost his seat to a Tea Party candidate. The toppling was seen as a cautionary tale of ignoring the flames of populism. Since then, he's moved on from fighting elections on Main Street to Wall Street, And is Vice Chairman of the Investment Bank Merlis. So, what did he learn on that journey? Eric Cantor, welcome to The Economist Asks.
0: And it's a pleasure to be with you.
1: We're going to talk about political divisions in the US. How to bridge that divide is still in the forefront of many of our minds. It was something you had to do in your old job as the House Majority Leader. And I have to say, you also dealt with it at home because your wife, Diana, is a a Democrat. Did that give you a good training in being able to balance things across people and groups who think differently?
0: For sure. I I think life is not uh, typically all about uh, one-sided opinion. And in order to interact with others, especially when you're a parent and you're raising children, I think important to expose them to various views and uh, allow them to think through and come to their own conclusions. So I do think around the dinner table, it probably was my initial sort of training, if you will, and trying to be tolerant of others' views, but not to give up in terms of your convictions and your own views. Unfortunately, we don't see a lot of that being played out right now in the public policy arena.
1: When you were in the House of Representatives, you formed an unlikely bromance with Joe Biden. He was vice president at the time, and he called you a man of enormous integrity. Now he's president and you can be nice about him if you like. But how do you assess your old colleague's political and economic agenda?
0: The time during which I got to know then-Vice President Biden, it was a very contentious uh, period of time in which we were newly elected majority in the House of Representatives after the 2010 election. And we were elected, uh, we felt, on a mandate to try and impose some fiscal discipline in the growth and the size of the federal government as well as the federal deficit and debt. And at the time, um, we also put in place a new rule, which required a separate and distinct vote on increasing the statutory debt ceiling. So what happened at that point was uh, then President Obama appointed Joe Biden as vice president to go and uh, create a forum for discussions with the Republican opposition. Uh, at the time, John Boehner, who was speaker, and I was the majority leader. Uh, we engaged in those uh, discussions, and I became Joe Biden's counterpart uh, in what was then dubbed the Biden Commission, to try and find a way towards building an agreement on how we could raise a debt ceiling. Each meeting, Joe Biden would open the meeting and say, nothing is decided upon until everything is. And then let's also decide what we just are not going to be able to agree on, those inviolable differences, uh, and then focus on the things that we could. And I think it was a good formula at the time. Unfortunately, now, I think in today's world, I think Joe Biden has become captured by uh, some of the more extreme elements of the Democratic Party who are leveraging their power over the legislative process And he's got a really difficult uh, situation given the very slim majorities his party enjoys in the Senate and the House, uh, which makes these extreme elements in his party much more impactful than I believe he would rather see.
1: When you say captured, you might just tell us briefly what you mean. And and are you saying that these elements, if we look to the debt ceiling and and the issues around that Congress has until the middle of December to strike a deal on how to lift or suspend the borrowing cap. And of course, if it didn't work, the government would default. It sounds a bit like a replay of the situation that you faced before, but the stakes are higher for Joe Biden. You seem to be doubtful that he's got it in grip.
0: I don't doubt that they'll increase the uh, statutory debt ceiling, and the Republicans at some point will come to a moment in which they will devise a way for the Democrats to increase the debt ceiling on their own, since both Houses are controlled by the Democrats. Clearly, you've got unified democratic government. It's just very, very slim in their majorities. What has happened is it's given some of the more extreme elements of the Democratic Party, the sort of Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren wing of the Democratic Party that really want to see a more socialist bent to our government. They've been able to exercise outsized power. And then we get to a point where this shrinking element of of centrist Democrats Um, have to stand up and say, wait a minute, we're not going along with that. Uh, And so Joe Biden is put in a position where it's really difficult, but the overwhelming majority and, if you will, intensity on his side of the aisle tends to be on the more extremist, progressive left. And it's not the Joe Biden I used to know when I worked with him.
1: Ah, do you think he's failing to deal with the left of his party? I mean, there is a left to the The Democrats, is a left and a right to the Republicans, and we'll come on to them in just a moment. What should Joe Biden be doing differently, given that he has these people to deal with? There's a certain number of, of votes and you've got to get the numbers. What would you say he's doing wrong?
0: I think if you go back in some of the initial decisions that he and his administration made was to pursue this, this omnibus social spending bill. I think that the public has a hard time discerning what in the world is in this proposed originally six trillion dollar bill to a three and a half trillion. And now they're saying it's closer to two trillion. All the public hears is all these incredibly large numbers, the likes of which we've never really had commonplace discussion about that had become commonplace. I think that was the initial decision that was made to curry favor with the left wing of the party because they wanted government to grow and to have so much more paid for and provided by government. I think that was the initial fault in the decision making by the White House. And now they're stuck. Because frankly, if you looked at where the centrist Democrats would want to be, I highly doubt they'd want to be in the situation where they're being forced to vote for such an extreme bill that creates so many new, incredibly large government programs, and having to go and raise taxes and revenues in some way to pay for it.
1: The Economist recently published a piece about how the world is entering an era of big government. You describe that critically. But in the OECD, that's the Club of Prosperous Countries, government spending has been consistently inching upwards since it was formed in the early 60s. And there is a desire by governments to come out of the pandemic with confidence and to rebuild societies. You championed small government. What do you think is happening with the creep of the state? And isn't it in a way inevitable, given the challenges that we face?
0: Well, I don't think there's any question that there was a need for governments to step up in response to the pandemic and the health crisis that we faced. Uh, because that health crisis and the reaction of the government, I think tended to exacerbate that crisis when you came with these massive lockdowns and shutdowns and mandates and the rest. I think it curbed people's ability to go about their livelihoods and to undertake their right to do business. But as you suggest, we are where we are. These governments have spent enormous amounts of money. I just worry that any time we trust in Washington or the federal government deciding on how and who gets to spend what in terms of allocating capital, that's not a good outcome. I also don't think it's a good outcome for any government, and especially ours here in the U.S., to pick winners and losers. And what you're seeing increasingly is that as well, is an industrial policy mindset that certainly is very foreign to someone like me who believes in limited government, who believes in the private sector, and who believes that part of the special sauce of America is the fact that our government is percentage-wise much smaller in terms of our GDP than any other country and developed country.
1: Isn't there a paradox here, though, that for the Republicans, we perhaps turn to the electoral outlook in the US for the, the Republicans at the moment, but to be the party that takes things away, takes the punch bowl away, it's often rather difficult to pull off. And in the end, you're a You know, you're a practical and you've been a practical politician as well as someone who thinks about the ideas. Would that not worry you for the Republicans to be coming after this, this big bouncing baby (laughs) of a bill saying, you know what, we're not going to spend on this, we're not going to spend on that. Is it the time to go back to the Reagan small state?
0: You know, I think in a way, some of those traditional lines of politics um, have been overtaken. I think you are seeing now people sort of choosing their electoral or political favorites uh, based on cultural issues. And I do think that, you know, in many ways, what you've heard uh, in, in some of the elite circles in this country is they just don't understand why people who may not be um, at the highest rung on, on the socioeconomic ladder, why they would support someone like Donald Trump or why they would support the Republican Party, because maybe it's not in their economic interest to do so. And I would tell you, I think that people are motivated by the fact that maybe they want to be, um, as individuals in this country, able to enjoy their freedom and able to pursue their dreams and conduct their lives the way they want to. Again, the promise of our Constitution was the pursuit of liberty and happiness. Uh, It wasn't a guarantee of an outcome. And I do think that much of what we've seen, and certainly my home state of Virginia recently, in the first lead up to a midterm election is a real cultural blowback, if you will, uh, given the outsized role and controlling levers that Washington has begun to pull. I I think that uh, those traditional sense of, hey, if you're taking something away, it's not good politically, perhaps not. But I do think there's a much, much stronger, intense force at play in our politics today.
1: So let's talk about the state of bipartisanship. It's a bit like the old Edward Lear hunting the snark. Uh, Everyone is in favour of it, claims to be in theory, uh, in practice, it can turn out rather differently. You've bemoaned the dwindling of bipartisanship, and yet you yourself were pretty robust, not to say harsh, sometimes during the Obama administration and were even prepared to walk out of negotiations. So isn't this a bit of a case of everyone else wants someone else to go and nail this bipartisanship, but they're not going to start with themselves? Now, I actually
0: disagree with that assessment of what happened during the Obama administration, because I do think there was a recognition on my part for sure. Uh, when he was first elected, I became at that point the Republican whip, uh, before becoming the leader. Then John Boehner, who at the time was the majority leader, he and I approached the president and his team in the White House, newly elected. We understood the mandate he came in with and we told him we wanted to work with him. He reciprocated and said, yes, we want to work with you, at least in conversation. The problem is what happened after his inauguration is the follow-through on that commitment really wasn't existent. It became my way or the highway by the Obama administration. And again, I think history could have unfolded differently if they had led in terms of bipartisanship on that, because we certainly were willing.
1: Be that as it may, bipartisanship didn't exactly take a great leap forward under the successor, under Donald Trump. Could we agree on that?
0: Listen, I think the die is cast. I think right now, uh, the incentives are just to engage in the fight. You get more reward from fighting than you do from resolving problems and coming up with solutions. Again, we're gonna have to find our way through this And finally, try and get to some solutions that actually a majority of the country would support, because I don't necessarily think it's healthy uh, the way things are going now with this pendulum swings that come with every couple of years when you've got unified government on one side, you're going to have a blowback and then the pendulum will swing back again, which I think we're about to see in 2022.
1: Let's turn to the Republican Party. What does it stand for now? And who do you think is its real leader Well, again,
0: anytime you're outside of government, the way the Republican Party is in Washington, that question always comes up. Who is your leader? There's no titular head. There's no there's no president sitting in the White House. So it's very difficult when you're the out party to say, well, who is the leader? I think there are various elements of the Republican Party now fighting for prominence in terms of the agenda. I will tell you that there is a real groundswell of majority support overwhelmingly in the party to push back against this gross expansion of the federal government to push back against what is being deemed this woke movement and cultural aspects uh, that the far left continues to try and impose on others.
1: Sounds like a recipe for endless culture wars.
0: There's certainly that element to it. But what it will take is real leadership at a moment where both sides need each other to work with one another. And we haven't gotten to that point lately.
1: A lot of Republicans want Donald Trump to make that comeback uh, for the presidential election in 2024. Do you think Trump should run as the Republican nominee?
0: Listen, again, free country. We have a lot of people who are interested in running. He's expressed at least a willingness to keep the option open. Um, there's certainly a lot of support for Donald Trump in the Republican Party today. And frankly, given where the Biden-Harris administration and its track record is and its polling numbers are, I think actually Donald Trump would be really competitive because, again, I think the country has already soured on the direction that this administration has taken us.
1: So you're saying you would support Donald Trump if he were to win the nomination?
0: I'm a Republican, and I really worry about the direction that this Biden-Harris administration is taking. And so I think my party will stand a good chance of gaining back the White House in 2024 with Donald Trump or with someone else.
1: But the Republicans took a decisive populist and nationalist turn under the presidency of of Donald Trump. So really, you would be buying into that, wouldn't you? You would be ticking the box again for all the risks and the divisiveness that flowed from that. Does that give you pause for thought?
0: We have a... Two party system in the United States, my party is much more focused on individual liberty, much more focused on private enterprise, much more focused in reducing um, the burdensome regulations in Washington and much less prone to have Washington decide and make decisions for families and individuals and businesses across the spectrum. And, and I I want to see that the direction that has been undertaken over the last couple of years under the Biden era, I want to see that reversed.
1: I know I do understand that, but that's a particular framing, isn't it? And I'm afraid if you go in again and you supported Donald Trump in, in 2016, you are also buying into elements of the... Trump vision and the Trump machine, which ended up in those dreadful events at the Capitol at the beginning of this year, in which lives were lost. You had an insurrection off the back of Trumpism, not just an argument about whether the state should be bigger or smaller.
0: I don't condone any of that. I think all of that should be denounced. I, I have no question about it, that the story that was alleged that there could some somebody, whether it was Vice President Pence or anyone else, could under our constitution overturn an election was just false. And I said so very publicly. I don't support, um, uh, you know, any of those kind of conspiracy theories or those uh, falsehoods. Absolutely not.
1: If we look at the way that Trumpism is linked to an earlier movement, the Tea Party, that's something you know about very much personally, your political career ended back in 2014 when you lost the Virginia primary famously to a Tea Party candidate. It was dubbed one of the greatest political upsets of modern times. We wrote about it in similar terms, suggesting that you were something of a canary in the coal mine of this new populism. What did you learn from that experience?
0: Clearly, that was the beginning of what then eventually uh, turned into the MAGA movement and this frustration with um, things that come out of Washington. I worry about populism because I don't think it's ever ended well. If you rail on our institutions long enough um, as elected officials and as politicians, then some of it's going to sink in. And what we've begun to see is now this erosion of respect and support for our institutions. And I think from a philosophical standpoint, ideological standpoint, we we need to step up and do something about that.
1: Do you think the presidency of Donald Trump fundamentally changed the soul of of the Republican Party and the the, the party that you still support? And obviously, you wish it to do better. But I'm just just listening to you, I'm I'm struck as a phrase that's the around a bit in Britain at the moment about cakeism, you know, having your cake and eating it. You want these things to be better. You want a better balanced system. You want to bring more active bipartisanship into the system. But at the same time, you want to do with, possibly with Donald Trump in the mix, who is the, the person who doesn't really act as a kind of gelling agent for difference. He exacerbates difference. That's how he rolls.
0: I don't think he himself was the cause of a lot of the angst and anger and populism that exists today. I think he was, as a politician, very artful in capturing that uh, and directing that support towards his way. In the end, our country, our party is about upward mobility. It's about a better future. It's about success for everyone. I think that uh, the Republican Party continues to stand for that in and amongst all the other noise that exists.
1: The midterms are in less than a year, control of the House and the Senate up for grabs and low approval ratings uh, for President Biden. Do you think that uh, the president, you've described him as an awesome operator, even when you didn't agree with him, do you think that uh, he's going to bounce back or that the Republicans are better positioned to make some gains?
0: I think that my party will retake the House of Representatives and could possibly take the Senate as well. You know, it's it's tough right now. That the, the headwinds that the administration is facing is are pretty stiff. You know, you've got. the the pandemic that just doesn't seem to die down. You've got the um, inflation that has begun to set in in real ways, not just transitory ways. And add to that the historic record of out-party elections, usually the out-party picks up at least 27 seats in Congress. All my party needs is five seats. And that's before you get to redistricting, which will inure to the benefit of my party, given our control of more state legislatures. So, I would put money on the fact that we're going to take over the majority in the House and that um, I think it's very likely we do so in the Senate.
1: And if we take your home state, Virginia it's just elected a new Republican governor in Glenn Youngkin, who's a political novice, campaigned very much on the Trump agenda, including about critical race theory teaching in schools on mask mandates and election security, the holy or unholy trinity of subjects Trump supporters are running on at the moment. Is this the party's strongest weapon? These kind of very divisive, very granular issues perhaps replacing the big economic and the big political divides that we've seen form and shape American politics in the past.
0: The result of the Virginia election was, one, given the debacles of the administration, whether it was Afghanistan debacle and it's in the withdrawal or whether it's the inflation that has set in. I think you also had a big issue in education, and that was cultural. And that popped up because so many parents were at home listening to what their kids were learning on Zoom because the schools were closed or had to be virtual. And all of a sudden, they woke up to this notion that, oh, my goodness, what are my kids learning? I want to say in that. I think that's a real cultural issue that exploded and was very meaningful in Glenn Youngkin's election I think that'll be a big issue going forward for 2022. Again, it's about control of government versus control by the individual and families.
1: What about mask mandates? Given that we're in the middle of a resurgence of a particularly virulent new strain of coronavirus, any concerns about that?
0: Again, I I think that uh, Glenn Youngkin has said that he would leave that decision up to the government that's closest to the people. He will not impose a mandate statewide. And I think that's the appropriate route to take.
1: Would you concede that Republicans have had some advantage here because of the structural sway within the Electoral College and the Senate? I think it's in the past 33 years, only one Republican presidential candidate has won the popular vote. It was George Bush in in 2004 in the aftermath of 9-11. And you do have to go back to his father, George Bush Senior, in 88 to find a Republican candidate who won the popular vote. Now, for some people, this is a clear unfair advantage. Your view?
0: No, I I am in favor of the Electoral College, and I think, number one, it takes a constitutional amendment to change that, which is not going to happen. There was a real attempt on the part of the framers of the Constitution to limit the power of the central government and to put in place, number one, at the federal level, the checks and balances, uh, and number two, to make sure that there was a dispersion of power away from the central government in Washington to the states. The Electoral College is reflective of that desire to limit the power of government.
1: I'm struck by listening to you that for someone who switched Washington for Wall Street, it sounds to me like you're still itching for politics. You describe yourself as a limited state Republican, as if that was your identity. Are you keen to get back on the pitch?
0: Well, know, yeah, I also very strongly believe in the private sector, and I'm very privileged uh, to be at Mollison Company. Uh, I care deeply about our country. I care deeply about the direction in which we go for the benefit of the people and the lives that we lead. So I enjoy both. Uh, and I'm always a, a student of that lesson of never say never. So you never know.
1: And there is an argument both in the US and UK about the revolving door of ex-politicians taking business opportunities and how that should be policed. Do you think the balance is right? I'm sure you're going to tell me in your case it is uh, it is right and that you've observed all the relevant rules and regulations. But do you understand concern? I mean, you've reflected a lot of concern from the old sort of May- Main Street looks at Wall Street and wonders when a lot of Wall Street has come out of political machines both left and right, I should say, centre-left and centre-right?
0: Number one, I think there's very few others, if any, right now, from the legislative elected branch of government that go in completely to the private sector. There are that revolving door syndrome, I think, much more applies to folks uh, who would go on to a position in which they're advocating before legislative bodies. And I believe in what Thomas Jefferson always espoused, and that was a citizen legislature. In Virginia, we actually still practice that, where you go make the laws and then you have to go live under the laws you pass. Because any other option, in, if you ask about a uh, revolving door, that if you're not allowed to go and assume a position in the private sector, I guess that means you're just going to be a career politician.
1: I think I read somewhere that you are a rap music connoisseur and Jay-Z is one of your favourites. Who do you think is the rapper who speaks to the Republican soul?
0: I'm not even going to attempt to, uh, attempt to guess that, so I'll, uh, I'll have to come back to you on that.
1: Eric Cantor, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you. A pleasure. And as my question left Eric Cantor a bit stumped there, I'd love to know what you think. Which rapper best represents the Republican Party? Answers on a mixtape, please or you can write to us at podcasts at economist.com or tweet us at Economist Pods. As we gear up for a new year and the revamps that come with it, here at Economist Podcasts HQ, we're always thinking about how to make our shows more enjoyable. So we've started a listener survey and we'd love to hear directly from you about what you like, what you'd want us to do more of. So please take part. Visit economist.com forward slash economist ask survey. We're looking forward to hearing from you. My producer is Alessia Burrell. I'm Anne McElvoy. And in London, this is The Economist.